Hello, and welcome to Orchestral Theatre, a series of conversations about interdisciplinary work involving orchestras. I'm Adrian Curtin. I mean, I, um, I've done a music degree. I went to music college. I did a postgrad. I've been steeped to music all my life, and I still, I still put my music, my love of music, down to watching the film Amadeus. Because for me, seeing that context and that, it's like I'm a true child of the '80s, and I know I'm not the only person in the orchestra that would say that. You know, seeing things brought alive, broken apart. There's that scene where they break apart the wind partita, and I, I think that scene is the reason I do music. That's Jane Mitchell, my guest for this episode. Jane is principal flute and creative director for Aurora Orchestra, and has been deeply involved in Aurora's programming, production and devising of work since the orchestra began. Jane has played a key role in the development of the orchestra's series for young people far, far away, and the online platform Aurora Classroom. Jane won the Royal Philharmonic Society ABO Orchestra Musician Award, then known as the Salomon Prize, in 2020 for her work with Aurora. Jane, I wonder if you would begin by just reflecting a little on um, how Aurora Orchestra has evolved since its inception in 2005, I believe. It began in sort of two different ways, actually, because we our very original beginning was um, with Nick Colin, our conductor, um, and his best friend at the time, Robin Ticciati, uh, launched this orchestra together. And it was just a group of people who'd come out of university and wanted to put on some concerts. And Robin was already incredibly successful and starry. Um, and we got some really big opportunities. It was all very exciting. We got um, amazing kind of designers working for us. Um, and uh, it was all kind of conceived of by them. And um, we were just kind of up for doing some concerts together. And quite quickly, Robin actually became sort of too successful for a startup group and, and was whisked away. Um, and there was a moment where we thought, well, I think perhaps the presumption was that that would be it. Um, and a group of players and Nick kind of sat around a kitchen table and thought, well, actually, why don't we kind of kind of start again um, and start from a much lower profile and just see what we would like to do as players. Um, and I think that was... It was well, it was obviously quite an important moment, but it was the moment where we all the players got a little bit a lot more kind of um license to say how they felt and what they might be interested in. Um and so we got a fellowship at the Royal Academy of Music. So it was immediately a much, you know, it wasn't kind of starry Barbican gigs. It was it was performing where a lot of us were still studying at the Royal Academy, and it was a chance to experiment with things. So, you know, our principal Basum was really interested in educational work. I remember phoning up Little Angel Theatre very early on. So I was, I was always interested in that kind of cross-arts collaboration and just trying some things out. We, we did an early collaboration with Bristol School of Animation. Nick wanted to do certain types of repertoire. And it was like a kind of um, experiment ground where um, we just, you know, because we didn't, you know, I think it, in some ways maybe it would be nice to answer, well, we had this incredibly clear vision <laughs> from the start. But actually, I feel like it's quite important 
our journey, it's been quite important that we haven't done it that way. We've we've evolved and we're quite we're reactive to what our audiences bring. How things feel, I feel like for us, so much of our journey has been about um, evolution, basically, and kind of thinking, what next? How do we keep going? And I think if we're still around in 10 years, it will be because we look very different again. So that was a that was the beginning of that way of thinking, really, of kind of like, well, what are we what are we feeling would be the right thing to do? What are we interested in? And then that's just kind of kept going from there. We then got a some a grant from the German Foundation, which was based on a series at LSO St. Luke's called New Moves, which was all about collaborating with different artists, different art forms for each concert. And that, again, was a real catalyst of this way of thinking of what can you combine with music? What works? What doesn't work? Because not everything works. Um, and then, then the next step was moving to the South Bank, um, which is where we are now. So it was kind of, you know, rather than kind of starting with everything decided, it's been it's been step by step. And I hope that journey is is continuing. I'm interested to hear you say that you and other people involved with the orchestra were already interested in cross art experimentation before you got funding for the New Moves series. I say this because there's a book called uh, Orchestra Management by Arne Herman, um, and that book states, and here I, I'll just quote from it, quote, working with other art forms was not something that the Aurora team had come to as a long-held ambition. Rather, the pragmatic opportunity that arose to distinguish the orchestra from existing ensembles later became Aurora's raison d'être. End quote. Is that statement something you would agree with or uh, take some issue with, perhaps? Um, interesting. Um, I think, well, so many of these things, it depends how you define Aurora and whether it's whether you talk who you talk to slightly, um, I have always had a really strong personal interest in cross arts collaboration. And my role at the beginning was principal flute, and I was the person at the very beginning that wanted to call up Bristol School of Animation and Little Angel Theatre and look at those things. So I personally, from the very beginning, was interested. But I think that didn't. I think that there is also truth that Aurora, as sort of the official voice of Aurora, that perhaps. That was it was an element, but it wasn't the kind of main thing. And it and it kind of um it's come through stronger and stronger and stronger, really, as as the thing and, and as we've experimented. So I suppose that's a sort of yes, yes and no. I understand why that sentence exists, but personally I have had a different journey with coming to cross art formation, cross arts collaboration. Yeah. How important would you say cross-arts collaboration or orchestral theatre is to Aurora's identity today? Um, I think there's been a real shift um, as we've sort of grown up a bit. I think it's like we've sort of come to realise what we really want and mean. Um, the New Move series was all about this idea of, um, a, you know, a different artist each time and we would kind of speak to different people and sometimes it'd be really uh successful sometimes it wouldn't sometimes it would feel like music was at the heart of it sometimes it would feel a bit like oh are we dipping into the territory of playing music with something else going on so I think cross arts collaboration at for its own sake is is not always 
uh what we're aiming for and and more and more we've come we've kind of grown in confidence to to think of it more like we are presenting music um and we're wanting music to speak to as many people as possible kind of as strongly as possible and sometimes that involves working with another art form um and sometimes it doesn't sometimes it involves other things like uh like those presentations we do for the proms performing from memory so our sort of toolbox has, has sometimes sometimes is a cross-arts collaboration but sometimes it's something quite different and how you define it in a way doesn't matter but we we have become much broader in our way of thinking we've also gained confidence so rather than now thinking of it as like right we want to do something interesting with music let's phone someone up we sort of it, the ideas come from us um, and we get much more uh, in, in general sometimes sometimes an idea comes from someone else but m- most of our thoughts are pretty well formed and then we might pick up the phone for, to help them on to help realize them and it's and it's that keeping music right at the center um, and if we think there's another art form that will help bring a vision that we've had to life then 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 we will explore that but not for its own sake I think has been the shift. Can you say a little bit more about how uh, how you go from project ideation to um, project execution because I'm aware that there are lots of steps along the way and I'm curious about how ideas are developed and the role that the other musicians might have in in developing those ideas and you know the kind of the, the trial and error process I guess. Um, yeah, I think there are lots of sort of different ways that ideas come to us. Um, we quite we quite enjoy a brief. <laughs> it's quite nice answering a brief. So that's kind of the simplest way. You know, something like the proms have been asking us, you know, they sort of, that's probably about 10 years ago now, but they first put to us that idea of um, kind of opening up symphonic works to an audience um, and then at that point, it is it is a, the you know the core team of it's me and Nick and John will sit down and think about how to do that. So the the memory idea, a lot of that came out of that idea of how do you open up works and actually talk to an audience or show an audience what's going on in a Beethoven symphony um, in a in a really vibrant way. Um, and then there will be a lot of time, you know researching and writing which can be quite a kind of that's that tends to come to me so it can be quite a solitary um thing for quite a while um we've collaborated a lot with tom service with those things so there's there's also you know there's a process there for writing and creating something that's when there's quite a clear brief but some of the more less clear <laughs> ideas can come from programming often so putting repertoire together something like our music of the spheres program um comes from a kind of feeling of different bits of music taking something like that Adair's violin concerto and how it feels to listen to it but also what the composers said about it and you know we paired that with Mozart's Jupiter symphony and part of that is based on that quite instinctive feel and I mean I don't know whether I like the word vibe but that kind of idea of of you know an audience journey just listening and and that kind of um instinctive thing or it can come out of reading reading a big book about Beethoven and noticing a really interesting connection about the year 1807 when something happened in Vienna and something happened and you know that we did our um, Smoke and Mirrors concert was very much based on I'm not going to get the year wrong but the volcanic eruption that that threads together a lot of Schubert 
songs and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, and I mean, personally, I really, I sort of love that, actually. I love that um, just sort of research and background. Um, so I think a combination, and the other way, of course, is if, if a collaborator approaches us or there's someone we know we want to work with, uh, but we, you know, the first thing has to be a conversation with them um, and seeing what they bring to the table rather than kind of dictating things. So there's a lot of kind of balance of, of, well, we've got these ideas, we know what works, but also we need to be open enough to bring other people in on those journeys with us. So sometimes, you know, we know that we shouldn't get too far in our thinking before speaking to something, someone else. So for, so the collaboration with Wando for Printworks, for example, was a, a, a really good example of that, where it was important for us to bring her in at an early stage rather than kind of dictate everything. Where there, whereas there are some other... There are some other collaborations where actually we do dictate. <laughs> so it's a, it's a real balance of those things and every, every project is a little bit different. What role do Aurora musicians have in either proposing or developing ideas? Um, so different levels of involvement. Um, we we hope and we think we present a very open kind of, we are up for your ideas and we get, I mean, certainly our principal players will email, talk, send a message, whatever, at any point suggesting either a collaborator or repertoire and all of those things get logged and, and many, many of them get used. We we actually don't run this series anymore, although it has been a catalyst for so many ideas. The lock-in series that we ran at King's Place for, I think, three years maybe, was um, was a very kind of explicit version of that where players um, curated a concert each. And that was just a kind of open call out saying, have you got any ideas Um um, for a for a late night concert in Hall Two, and and it was and it was purposefully quite experimental. So if you sort of had a vague idea, our percussionist suggested a John Cage music circus. Uh, our cellist had some of his own compositions with electronics that he really wanted to do. Someone else wanted to do some chamber music with people lying down, um, and it was a really lovely way for players who perhaps had an idea but didn't quite know how to realize it or didn't have the confidence that I would then work very closely with them to um whether it needed a script or a slideshow or lighting you know they would they would feed into that but then we would help with the detail and the sort of technical aspects and that series was sort of part of Mozart's piano which came to an end um but that idea of if you've got an idea tell us we very much try and keep alive and I and I think a lot of us missed the lock-in actually and would like to come up with a similar series um but you know, capacity is a word that's used a lot in our in our organisation. Um, but also, I think within rehearsal processes, there's there's we we really try and keep open space for players, especially you know something like our far far away projects, or we just did uh, the wolf duck mouse, which was a really kind of staged version of some of a children's piece by Martin Suckling. Um, those those rehearsal processes where we're working with the director um, and there's space for players to sort of show what they can do, show what they're up for. Um, and we, when we work with directors, we often, well, always the brief is, you know, work with the player's strengths rather than um, decide something in advance. And, I, and we found people that can do that really well and then bring things out of players. Um, and also we, 
we we do that ourselves when we're planning a presentation or something we know certain players will be very up for certain things others may not but would prefer something else so we're sort of working with them and trying to keep it as open as possible but again it's a balance of you know you've got to also kind of shape it into something that works Hmm. have you ever experienced pushback or resistance from players about things that you're asking them to do that might take them out of their comfort zones um we we're quite good at dealing with that Um, (laughs) definitely definitely there have been some projects where it's felt like um we're pushing to the limits and things are stressful often when there's sort of tv involved or prom um our radio three recording um there can be a bit of that feeling where players want to give their absolute best performance and they're also being asked to do six other things um and i think and the thing when you know when that happens there are always about 10 factors so it might be that we've asked them to do something you know that feels beyond a comfort zone but it might also be um a rehearsal schedule or a tour schedule or an you know an an acoustic or adapting things to different venues can bring quite difficult things when an orchestra suddenly or close you know it's it there's a uh, adapting to different concert halls is one of our biggest challenges there's a reason why theatres have black box spaces mm-hmm. and so you know a player might be comfortable one day and then suddenly find they're right behind the trumpets or so you know there's, so there's there's definitely moments but it's not it's it's not always obvious whether it's because we've asked them too much or whether there's always about eight other factors but it's one of the things we're thinking about all the time is how to ask players um, in a way that keeps them comfortable um, and I think my role that's often my main thing because I'm a player myself I I'm not sure I always get it right but it's something I feel I can do is think how it would feel you know thinking about you've got your oboe in your hand you need your reed you need your thing you know you're just knowing that that level of detail I think really helps so I think we're we're pretty good at it, but we're very we're kind of constantly keeping ourselves in check about that. I mean, I presume it's easier for the players who have had more experience um, with Aurora than it is for, say, a freelancer who's just joined the group for the first time and may not have had prior experience, prior professional experience, or or you know, experience as a student in the conservatoire of being asked to perform in ways that are sort of outside the norm. Yeah, I think it I think it is. And what's but what's been noticeable actually kind of recently, I would say, is um we now we now have built up quite a core of players, freelance players, lots of players who who kind of have learned to expect that. So when freelancers come in, there's already an atmosphere of, yep, <laughs> we're gonna, we are going to do this and it's going to be fine. And, you know, there's not that feeling, they they sort of instill confidence in the new players. So I think, I think that really helps. But yeah, we're always very aware. It's like, well, these people have not done this before. And, you know, something like a Far Far Away show is a perfect example of that, where we, we will actually, you know, we'll always review the script um, and Kate, our writer, might you know, reassign lines or, you know, it's very kind of people dependent. Um, Yeah, that's a big factor. But I think, yes, it's more difficult for them. But the more experienced the others are, the more it helps. What are some of the other logistical challenges that you face when putting together 
orchestral theatre type projects. So you mentioned the the challenge of relocating space, and we've talked a little bit about player experience. Is time, is rehearsal time and preparation time something else that you find challenging? Definitely. I mean, I'd say the big challenge the big challenge is that we are attempting to do something towards a theatre show without a theatre model. So there's a reason why people, if you're going to put on a theatre show, rehearse for weeks and then and do a run of shows for, for often weeks. Um, and that's a model you can re- you can afford the you can afford the rehearsal period because the box office is 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 much more. Um, it just it's just a model that you know I'm sure it's incredibly difficult to make work but it sort of makes sense um and we're constantly having to keep in check well we can't put on you know we can't put on a sort of west end show for one night (laughs) and rehearse it for three days um but also an orchestra we would become a very you know maybe one day we'll create a show that could run for months and months you know maybe one day Beethoven or whoever will be that popular um but I think then even that you know sometimes we think, well, is that the dream to do that? And then, and then even that, we're not sure because I, you know, for players, it's so out of our culture to to do that, to, to sign up for a kind of four-month run of shows playing Beethoven five. I mean, it would be such a leap. And I I don't know, maybe we'd keep it fresh and brilliant, but I have a feeling that players would after a week, perhaps some of our some of the players that are our, you know, our best players might want to go and play something else after a couple of weeks as we're all trained to do so we're constantly trying to we'll just be aware of that and and keep the balance so you know not sort of berate ourselves for not producing a west end show in three days because obviously we're not going to do that um but then play to the strengths of a flexible ensemble and you know that that's going to do something very different the next week and keep things quite light touch and nimble, but effective. So that's often at the core of the sort of ideas. It's like, well, it's not going to be, you know, we're going to create something that's really effective, but small scale. And this is a consonant. It's about the music. And, you know, you don't need to, we want to make this music speak, but that's not about kind of setting off every firework available. That's Mm. about the music. And at the core of it, we're standing on stage playing our instruments that's amazing, you know, to, to trying to keep that and, and and enhance it and think about, you know, we're not ruling out the the, the six month tour <laughs> of, the, of the blockbuster show. But it's that is the if it, that is the main um, kind of thing we're wrestling with to answer mm. to answer the question. <laughs> um, and most problems flow from that. So time, money, um, you know, player availability. Uh, capacity of ideas because we're not creating one idea for you know the next two years we're creating ideas we have to have ideas you know each month for a new children's show then a new concert then our next QEH concert then our next you know it's it's um it's sort of exhausting or um exhilarating depending on Mm. how you (laughs) want to think of it
Aurora's projects often have you know, many ideas in them. And part of what I've been doing in my research is uh, you know, reviewing items in Aurora's archives and seeing things in the planning stages that don't necessarily make it into the, the final performance. Which makes me wonder, is that because the idea didn't work, they tried it, it didn't work, or um, you, know, you weren't able to do it for money reasons? Or there was, you know, artistic thinking in terms of, you know, if we put too much into this, it will detract from what we're trying to do. So I'm wondering how, as a creative director, you come to the determination of how much is enough in terms of uh, theatrical elements to add to a performance. Yeah, well, that is that I often um, describe it as kind of walking a tightrope, um, that kind of feeling. And, and I think... Yeah, it's interesting that you picked up on that. I always think the big projects like the Berlioz or those big, big projects, I always feel like we need to just start really early so that we can go down the rabbit holes and get back out of them. Otherwise, <laughs> we'll be in the rabbit hole when it's time for the show. But all of those shows, because because we're trying something, you know, we don't even know what it, you know, that's something like that Berlioz. We didn't even know what like what it was and sometimes we can make the list of what it's not um much more easily you know and we sort of knew it wasn't we don't we never want to make it soundtrack to a thing um we want it to make it about the music and I think that's the sort of constant thing that um guides then those decisions so sometimes sometimes it is we have an idea um and it might be it often it is to be honest money logistics but often that means it was the wrong idea as well actually because the scale we're working on sort of needs to sometimes if the idea is too big for that it probably wasn't the right idea actually probably the orchestra on stage needs to keep to that kind of scale of idea and so sometimes it's sometimes it's money logistics but often it's often it's like the collaborator doesn't you know we we, we go down a path with someone else and it feels like the fit is wrong or it, I mean so often you can think you're kind of speaking the same language as someone I don't know like a completely other art form and then you realize that they're thinking of it in a completely different way from you and actually quite often what people want to do is create something over a soundtrack of music <laughs> they go away and they listen to the piece and they come back with all these lovely ideas and it's just like oh no that's, you're creating a film to Berlioz whatever um, and so that will be like okay that will tell us that we don't want that um, so quite often that's the thing is that it feels like an idea is taking over the music and it, and you know and then it's steering but I, I now have come to realize that when we when we row back from an idea I'm, I'm, I'm often quite pleased because I'm like oh, okay great that must mean we're nearer the path. <laughs> we've um, we've just done that with the right of spring, and I um I think eight years ago I would have been oh god this is terrible because because it's not working, and now I'm like this is good it's good because that means mm. that we're nearer to the right idea if we've we've just lost an idea. So yeah, I think that, I think that partly mm. answers things. <laughs> it does. I'm curious about how you might respond to critics who might say in in relation to the Berlioz piece. For example, why do you need any of these theatrical accompaniments? Berlioz composed the piece so that we would imagine the various scenes for ourselves. Well, I would say they're right. You don't need them. Um, and there are countless brilliant, brilliant orchestras playing Berlioz every week. And 
go to those concerts and enjoy them and soak it up and imagine it. But why not, I suppose? Um, I think there's space for one orchestra to do it with those things. And I and I think those composers, well, I mean, not that we're doing it for them, but like, I just think trying and trying with this music and um, making it, just having fun with it feels really important. I sort of just feel like, Beethoven, Mozart, whoever these people, I'm sure they had fun with their music and it was flexible and probably they played it at parties on the piano and they let their friends improvise with it and they played it in the cafe and maybe they wore silly hats sometimes. I don't know, but I feel like if that's your reason, then no. Because <laughs> I believe those composers had that spirit of joy and experimentation. And so that's what I think in answer to that. But also, I mean, I am, I've, done a music degree I went to music college I did a postgrad I've been steeped to music all my life and I still I still put my music my love of music down to watching the film Amadeus because for me seeing that context and that it's like I'm a true child of the 80s and I know I'm not the only person in the orchestra that would say that you know seeing things brought alive broken apart there's that scene where they break apart the wind partita and I, I think that scene is the reason I do music and I was taken to operas and I was so fortunate I was taken to Ashley Berlioz Symphony Fantastique lots and lots of performances and I enjoyed it but I needed I needed that um I needed to know more about context and I needed some things brought alive for me and that made me feel it more and I do believe there are other people like me out there um, who appreciate that. And uh, people who don't have got so many other options. <laughs> like there's just, we're not, there are, I think the orchestras aren't yet going to stop doing Berlioz Symphony Fantastique on Friday night that you can go and see. So I'm definitely not saying, can everybody please put on masks? But I, I do believe there are some people, you know, it's not, I don't think every concert in the world is being, is full at the moment for classical music. And I think, I, I definitely know there are some people who will just feel like they it it grabbed them more because they understood more about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, we performed that Berlioz also on tour without without all the things, and we loved it, and people loved it. So so yeah, I sort of think yes to all, but I hope there's space for for everything. Indeed, I'm assuming that the fantastique project is you know one of those projects that you're most proud of in relation to the orchestral theater work you've done i'm wondering if there are other projects uh, that live on happily in your memory as examples of works that you created that you, you think you've really nailed what it was that you set out to do yeah, yeah, because actually, interestingly, I don't think that about everything. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> I guess, um, I, um, yes, there are. I, I've i been really proud of the proms presentations, actually. Um, I think that delving into scores and breaking things apart and using the memorization to that end has felt one of those things where it's just like everything adds up and it's definitely... Um, I I think it's it's really enhancing the musical listening experience for a lot of people. And I feel like that doesn't exist in many other places, but that uh, that ability to bring players out and demonstrate things and really, I mean, you know, we put Beethoven five 
we put the beginning on drums and we broke apart rhythm and then we showed how the second movement the the river of sort of variations is passed between players and when we do things like that that feels so like it's bringing our kind of ridiculous levels of knowledge <laughs> of scores and you know our sort of music degrees and it's using them for something that is really accessible that feels I feel very proud of those and i it's interesting when we do those presentations. I mean, maybe I'm making it up. But I don't think so. But, you know, something like when we did Eroica, we really delved into the last movement. And then when we came to the last movement, you just felt the audience listen in a different way. When we came, when you come to some of those bits that we've unpicked, the room just feels different. And I that that's one of the things that excites me the most. Um, I also end up feeling proudest of the moments where we've really made audiences laugh because I feel like that doesn't happen very often in in classical music concerts. Um, we did a collaboration with Manu DeLago uh, ages ago, 2014, maybe, um, one of our New Moves concerts. He's a percussionist um, hang player uh, called House, which was which was genuinely really funny. Uh, um, there was a moment where they, they did this percussion piece for a sort of dining room table, and then our... our um, principal pianist came in sort of hoovered and then the sound of the hoover blended with the next piece and like it was like a moment like that I'm always like mm. yes <laughs> it was that's that was really good um and also I think uh, you know the the far far away series I would mention as um being something I feel um has had lots of moments that really work yeah that in way in a way for children that that I know is not easy to achieve so I feel proud of of those as well mm. Can you speak a little bit about how the Far, Far Away series connects to the other work that the orchestra does? Uh, I think John Hart has has called Far, Far Away a, a, a crucible for some of the orchestra's performance experimentation. Uh, do you see there being deep synergy between all of the various theatrically inclined performance work that Aurora does? Um, well, it's sort of easy for me to say that because I think quite often the connection is is me. Um, <laughs> but it is quite people dependent. Far, far away um, has come out of a trio of people, which is me collaborating with Kate Wakeling, the writer, and Jesse Marion Davis, who has present, presented all of the early shows, but is a music workshop leader and a real education specialist, but also just incredibly creative, and brilliant. And the three of us, it's sort of our baby kind of thing um and it's just always felt like a space where we can be quite bold and brave and have fun with it and then Kate and Jesse both were both worked with the orchestra in other ways so Jesse was a real central to the lock-in series actually and I and I immediately picked up the phone to Jesse when we thought about that series and thought you're the person that we need to make this work and Kate so often is brought on to help with words and text and and just thoughts actually for the rest of the orchestra so actually it's kind of in a way it's kind of those people that that infuse everything that's so in a way it's as simple as that but also I think it's always felt like far far away has just felt like yeah this kind of bolder space where we can put Beethoven with a dinosaur and we could make the audience do a conga around the room or we can you know get someone to blow bubbles to Britain or whatever it is and then and then you know I think the, the glitter balls were far far away you know there are so many things that we were like it's fine to get a glitter ball out in a children's concert and then it and then you see the results and then you think well, of course <laughs> <laughs> enjoy that you know it's, it's been a sort of um 
like a sort of safe space. And then because the people are, are overlapping and the players as well, it's safe space for the players actually as well. So many players have, after kind of 20 runs of far, far away shows, they're fine with standing <laughs> in a prom, having been dressed as a dinosaur and delivering bits of text. Um, so yeah, I think that's the kind of, that's the relationship. Um, I look yeah. forward to the um, concerts for um, adults then that involve conga lines and blowing bubbles. Yes. And, and yeah, you have done yeah, the exactly. Far Far Away concerts for adults, right? Well, we've done, yeah, we have done, we, uh, two two productions made it into um, the Lockin series, actually. Mm. It was, it was great, yeah. It was pretty fun. <laughs> Can I ask you to reflect on the the print works concerts that Aurora recently performed? I'm curious about how these came about, what the thinking behind them was, and why, for example, you chose to pair uh, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony with uh, Wando Ibize's music. Um, so the print works concerts, I think, have come out originally of the idea that our memorised symphonies just feel like they hold so much potential for getting people inside orchestras. And we've done various kind of pop-up or schools workshops, things where we've invited children inside the orchestra or, you know, quite a small group of grown-ups um, in a shopping centre or something and played surrounding them. And it's and, and also we do the thing where we we go out into the audience at the end of a concert and play to everyone and it's and people love it like they really really like it um but it's always felt a bit like you know the musicians are like well that that sounded awful because <laughs> like, it's so hard it's just so so hard to play that spaced out like it it's ridiculous to try um but it but we can yeah actually we've got lots better at it um um and it's and it's fun and it's brilliant people love it and then we've always kind of thought wouldn't it be amazing to get large numbers of people to experience that and make it quite theatrical as well? Um, and kind of, you know, we, we, you know, we talked for ages about the sort of punch drunk style, um, you know, warehouse feel of just creating sound and atmosphere and getting audiences to, you know, not be told what to do, but to kind of tune into that, which feels still actually very kind of scary um, and risky. But feels very kind of ripe for ideas that I, you know, that idea of of going into an incredible space, being immersed in sound and um, experiencing a symphonic work from the centre of an orchestra. All of those ideas sort of came together then when Printworks, I think they approached us to say they were looking for orchestras to come and do something in their space. And we went there and we we talked to them and um, Simeon, the, the kind of, head of it um was very keen on like bring your music the go-to is to play you know whatever it is play club music or because you know, all that stuff works really well and can be brilliant or like do something that's kind of more upbeat or rhythmic you know or minimalist musical and and actually he we were really delighted and excited that he was like yeah bring Beethoven like <laughs> just do what you do 
that's really cool. We were like, yes, it is cool. Um, so, <laughs> um, so that felt like the opportunity to sort of try some of those ideas we'd been thinking about anyway, about bringing people in a different kind of space, playing with the theatrics of a building. And and then, then this opportunity arose that we could get this, this soundscape system, which actually could then start to make it possible to be really spread out and get large numbers in. And also just the lighting rig at Printworks is insane. Um, and they're much more, they're just really, um, they're incredible can-do uh, team. Um, so we, you know, we turned up with a sort of lighting script that we thought might be ignored. And they were just like, oh, yeah, we've programmed that. <laughs> um, <laughs> press the buttons and see if it works. We were like, okay, great. Um, so it just suddenly felt like a sort of playground of stuff. and it And it feels, I mean... Um, you know, we could have a conversation, I'm sure, about the the flaws of last week. And there's lots of things we're trying to figure out. But I think the concept is a very exciting one of, I mean, certainly lots of people like really, you know, the three and a half thousand people experienced that Beethoven. And I think many of them wouldn't be booking the QEH concert that we did on Saturday. And that in itself is really exciting. The collaboration with Wando came, well, we worked with Wando a few years ago, um, on our New Year's Eve concert, um, which she DJed at, and then it was brilliant. She kind of brought a party after midnight, and she also threaded together Goldberg variations and Riley's in C. And she did she sort of worked with us on this sort of journey idea. Um, and we were excited to work with her again, and it felt like, well, this is a really good opportunity. And then when talking to Beethoven Five, we we knew we wanted to do Beethoven Five and that it would be one that would work in that space quite well. But um it was a piece that she knew really, really well and was excited to respond to. So, so that was kind of how that got set up. I think there's so many ways we could do that print works evening and they might look quite different if we do an, another one, but we were, we were interested in this sort of dialogue between, you know, music that is heard in that space every, every night um, and the music we're bringing and how, you know, how also we could help the audience try and experience more of the building and, you know, there's lots of factors, um, but if she felt like, you know, the right, Pairing for that mm. this year. What did you observe of the audience at those concerts, and did they behave as you expected them to? In both cases, I was really amazed and delighted at how much people wanted to listen to Beethoven. <laughs> um, I thought the biggest challenge would be getting silence um, and proper listening, and that was just not actually the challenge although I think we did do quite a lot of things to make that happen that I probably... saw I saw a sign on the on one on one of the walls asking um, audience members to minimize noise during oh, the performance it? was that something that you asked that you asked Printworks to put up actually I didn't know about that so maybe someone did but um that's interesting well, I was interested in that because I, it was like, okay, so they do, they, they, in, in a way, you're asking us to behave as an audience usually does in a concert hall, even though we're not in a concert hall. Yeah. I and, and, know would that. It, and would it be, and would it be so terrible if there, if people were chatting with one another a little mm. bit? as they listened as people around me were, were doing a little and it didn't really bother me but yeah um it just i mean there are there are different you know different conventions i guess at at work yeah yes well interestingly i i didn't know that and i wouldn't have suggested that <laughs> and I'm, i'd be oh, interested to know how much that affected things and how much was the kind of you know 
people just were quiet to listen because that turns out what is what happens when a conductor stands up and makes mm-hmm. people quiet. Um, so I I would I'm quite up for people being quiet because I think it's quite an amazing thing, but I would rather it was for other mm-hmm. reasons than a sign being put up. Um, so that's that's quite interesting. Um, but certainly those print work, I mean, those print works events just feel it it feels miraculous that any of it works at all to me. They are such like once you're there and it's happening, I'm sure people feel like, oh, this obviously this is going to happen. But from us <laughs> when you're when you're there with your starting point, you know, six months before, it just feels like, how on earth is that going to work? So for me, um, you know, there are I I I think probably there are a few too many. I think we upped the capacity and I think maybe it was a bit too much it was it was intense it was intense and I so I that would be my vote though there's always like a million other things to consider when you're talking about capacity and box office and things but my vote would be to keep the audience slightly smaller um and encourage either people should just stand and listen to Beethoven or or really there should be more encouragement of movement between um but it, it was slightly between the two grounds I thought at which point people might feel like they're just kind of standing waiting for more beta yeah it was it was so which might have been because of the capacity so there's lots we are reflecting on but I also know at my core that essentially many many people um heard a symphony and we did it and it worked and like the lighting was great <laughs> so I you know I you know I'm trying you know it's absolutely next time there are all these things but also that's great that that those elements worked Mm. Um, and, the, and the sound was really um, impressive. Though I, 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 at one point, I was standing there thinking, "Do I understand what I'm hearing in terms mm. of how I'm hearing it, and am I actually hearing this space?" And I'm not sure yeah. that I did hear that space. Yes, I am. Um, I don't understand the sound thing at all. But I think that is a very um, good point. That it it sort of is a strange thing. It's like a completely weird thing that you're hearing. Um, which is sort of interesting in itself, but it's not necessarily what you would just presume. You're hearing like the localized sound of the player, but from the speaker that's there, um, plus some uplift on all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just curious. I'm curious. I mean, is, did you ever think about well, could we have just played in that space and ha- and have had bad sound, right? But but then you would have had an uh, an authentic experience of what Beethoven sounds like in that space. We wouldn't have um, been able to do that. We, we we did a day like two and a half years ago. Um, and I mean, we couldn't hear each other. Um, so it would have just been um, it, impossible to play together. Um, mm. And it sounded really bad. <laughs> it, sounded, mm. it just sounded very, very dry, actually. And, mm. uh, and um, quiet. Um mm. So as oh. uh, but in a different space, and actually Printworks is closing. And yeah. uh, the first thing we would do in a different space is try that. Because mm. um, in a way, that is the ultimate aim. But mm. um, yeah, it's many, yeah. many factors. Earlier, you mentioned that uh, in 10 years' time, you think Aurora might look and sound and and be quite different. Can you give a sense of what that future version of Aurora might be? 
I don't think I can because um, because I don't know yet. Um, but I I don't think it will look the same. I think there are big I think there are big things to consider coming up. I think touring may end up looking very different. Um, and I think everyone says the words digital. Um, and um, I mean, Aurora have just done this huge, huge thing of creating Aurora Classroom, um, which is, an, you know, which is us really, really thinking deeply about reach and people and things that are things that are not necessarily live and how to make that work. And I've, and it's been incredible. I mean, we haven't even talked about that today, but that has been, you know, sort of 60% of what I've done the last three years, partly pandemic based. But um, I think those journeys of how you're reaching people by whatever means, playing instruments or just how music reaches people, I think will become the focus maybe more than a concert hall and an orchestra necessarily. But I don't know quite what the answer will be, but I think it will be, a, the questions will become broader, I think. Thank you so much, Jane, for taking the time to chat with me today. It's been really, it's been really rewarding. And I've, I've loved learning more about how Aurora functions uh, from the inside. Thanks. No, it's nice. It's nice that people are interested. It's great. <laughs> This podcast is part of a research project funded by the British Academy, the UK's National Academy for the Humanities and Social Sciences.